Hello, and welcome to Montana Classical College. Today, I'm joined by my friend, the effortlessly handsome Fokian Dionysius. Fokian, how are you? I'm good. Glad to be here, Cerberus. All right. Ryan Wilson. <laughs> That's right. Um, so Fokian and I also have a course on understanding modern liberty, which I'm going to link to this, which is really good. Fokian has a lot of good insights um, into the character of modern liberty. But today, uh, we're going to discuss something a little bit different. Um, there are two essays that Fokian wrote that will be linked to the substack. One of them is called The Mystery Behind Philosophy, and the other one is called Aristocratical, Aristocratical Christianity. It seems to me that part of what you're doing, Fokian, is showing that Christianity is more noble than Nietzsche's presentation of it would suggest. Um, and you even say that Nietzsche might have attacked Christianity in the same way that Plato attacks Homer or that Aristotle attacks Plato or seems to attack. Could you spell out that thesis a little bit? Um, yeah, sure. Um, a good starting point for Nietzsche is, of course, uh, BAP. And if you remember in Bronze Age mindset, BAP is explicit at one point that he, what he's doing is he's promoting a sort of divine madness. So he recognizes that he's promoting a certain kind of madness. Mm -hmm. It's not like he's promoting the, his own. I, I would be surprised if he, and definitely if Nietzsche thought of himself as in some sense mad or divinely mad, <laughs> uh, inspired by, you know, the divine. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, it's my opinion that philosophers, like Nietzsche, like Plato, like Aristotle, promote approximations to what they think is the noblest and the best. Um, and Plato promoted an, an approximation. This approximation was attacked by Aristotle, who pretended like Plato's approximation was Plato's most significant opinion or true opinion. Um, I should say actual opinion. Um, people attack Aristotle similar ways people attack Locke uh, in similar ways Nietzsche attacks um, Plato uh, and Christianity I believe in a similar way that is um, all great ideas have all philosophers have their what they actually know to be true and then what they have as their approximation their public teaching um, and if anyone's familiar with Strauss um or with uh, my own essays on these topics um, following Strauss, it's that philosophers probably all agree on the fundamental things, but then alter their uh, public teachings in because different times call for different teachings. So I, th I think it's p quite possible. Um, I think an argument can be made from reading Nietzsche that Nietzsche is providing a public teaching that is necessary for our time. Um, and he felt that to do so, he should attack um, Christianity, which is uh, obviously in our time, not the greatest force for good. Mm -hmm. Right. So I think like as an example, you kind of suggested, and I think this is right, you know, that uh, in book two of Aristotle's politics, like when he's summarizing Plato's Republic, he sort of only summarizes it up to a certain part of book five. And he, as you point out, doesn't treat the Republic as a dialogue. Um, as if he reads it as if it's a treatise on one hand, but then if you, you know, only summarize the Republic up to book five, as you know, Socrates only summarizes the Republic up to book five in the Timaeus or Plato's Timaeus, you don't get the idea that the whole, the city is more or less devoted to bringing out philosophers, to causing them to come into being, that it's somehow for them, the only political regime that attempts to aim itself at the truth as the core of its political goal, um, which is not something, you know, that any other nation or country tries to do. That's not their explicit or core goal is understanding the truth. Um, and so then, so then what you're trying to say is something like, you know, human beings, you know, more or less the majority of us, the vast majority are unreasonable. And so in order to present the truth, you can't simply state the truth directly. You have to somehow appeal to the prejudices of the time in order to slowly move the most promising or maybe quickly move them, but to move the most promising 
closer to the truth through this presentation of an approximation of the truth. Does that does that seem right? Yeah, that that does seem right. And you, I mean, you just cannot, even if you were to, even if to the best of your ability, you were to state what you think is true in the clearest terms you possibly could. If someone were, if you were to like say this to an undergraduate or high schooler or to just an average person, they wouldn't understand what the hell you're talking about. It wouldn't Mm -hmm. matter if you stated it clearly or if you tried to do a riddle or whatever. You have to approximate what you know to your audience. That's a a limitation on the transference of knowledge. Mm -hmm. So if if you're living in an age of enlightenment, then Christianity is going to look a little bit different or you're going to have to start presenting it in a different way or start out with like, okay, so my audience believes in the enlightenment the enlightenment seems to push against christianity in all sorts of ways therefore my audience won't find me to be convincing at all if i you know present christianity as it is or something like that sure yeah um so then maybe maybe we could talk a little bit about nietzsche and maybe talk about a blame that nietzsche has of christianity on one hand that i think really helps bring out mm, the kind of conundrums that you point to for the modern christian or the contemporary Christian. Um, and then maybe then briefly talk about a praise of Christianity that Nietzsche has. Now, I kind of put together a sort of cumbersome thing at first, but then I remembered there's this essay by a poster named Nostromo, who I think gets to the heart of things really quickly um, in an essay that I'll link. But he says this, Christianity as the first universalizing morality, the epitome of slave morality, began the 2,000-year process of homogenization of distinct nations and peoples. And the democratic movement, which replaced God with the state, is the heir to Christianity. A people cannot exist without its own distinct morality. So it seems like part of what Nostromo is getting at is that uh, there's this homogenization of distinct nations and peoples, that there's just a sort of you could say like a yeast, it points towards potentially a kind of yeasty or indistinct mass of human beings. And what's what's worse in a way is that it seems to threaten to pull down the greatest or encourages a kind of slave revolt against those who have the highest capacities, that they shouldn't, shouldn't be the ones who rule. And that this seems to be a kind of transvaluation of the sort of like ancient account of things where, you know, the low should be subordinated to the high. Um, or something like that, that it seems like this is maybe the core of Nietzsche's blame of Christianity. I don't know if there's anything that you would want to add to that. I mean, we could have an entire, you know, episode or an entire class, you know, maybe on Nietzsche's view of Christianity, but, but is there anything else that you would want to add that you think helps get at what we want to talk about with your essays? Yeah, I would begin by saying there's no use in denying that Christianity has at times played the role Nostromo attributes to it in that quotation. It hasn't always been on the right side of political questions or civilizational questions, if you want to say that. But there are two considerations to keep in mind. The first, when it comes to what a universal morality is, you you can cut it two ways. One way tends in the direction that Nostromo takes it, which is to say, if your morality is for all and by being for all is um, achievable by all is for all is for every man um, is for the good of all, for the equality of all. uh, If your morality tries to erase the distinctions between men to promote the well-being of all the men, then yes, you've got a universal morality that uh, is very much, similar to or the same as Nietzsche's slave morality. But you can also talk about a universal morality that is the morality by which all moralities are judged or all people are judged. It doesn't mean that everyone can live up to the morality or that the morality is in a sense um, approachable or useful to everybody, mm-hmm. but it's still the morality by which they're judged. So you, you know, you can say, um, the, we'll just make a simple thing like a Socratic dictum that um, knowledge is virtue. Or you can say even a Nietzschean dictate dictum, whatever doesn't kill me makes me stronger. Mm-hmm. Uh, both of these can be 
um, universal in both senses, which is to say they can be universal insofar as they are realizable by only a very few people and that everyone who cannot realize them are worse for that inability. Mm-hmm. Um, but they can also be perverted and made into sort of universal slave type moralities where Nietzsche's dicta becomes a pop music uh, punchline <laughs> um, and uh, Socrates's uh, dictum knowledge is virtue can lead to this claim that no one is vicious because everyone is ignorant. Um, so right. like the Redditor, you know, following the science is virtuous. Exactly. That's another way to read it. <clears throat> yeah. So, um, my point is, is that there are two notions of universality, the universality that is for all and realizable by all, and the more noble type of universality where everyone is judged by a high standard, but va- the vast majority of people will nevertheless not be able to live up to that universal standard. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is the standard that was, you know, kind of the inspiration for um, Western colonialism all across the world. Like, you know, you have your, your colonials going everywhere and exporting their standard, never um submitting themselves to any parochial culture they are in a sense true men of the world because they're world conquerors and then there's of course the men of the world who hate all colonialism who are world citizens and it's a completely different thing but it has a very similar sounding feel you know Mm -hmm. yeah I, i think it's a really helpful distinction between two different kinds of universal moralities one that's realizable by everybody and therefore would have to be a low standard by definition to be realizable by everybody. But then another kind of universal morality that sets a standard that you judge all human beings by, but that judgment will imply that some human beings are good and some are bad um, insofar as some can realize what the standard entails in the fullest sense, but some simply can't. Um, And so... Yeah, I think that's a really helpful way to put it. And so so then the question at stake to some extent is, is Christianity a universal that a universal morality that ultimately demands quite a bit and not everybody is up to the standard? Or is it a low ask that anybody can realize um, even a very low capacity or something like that? Right. And that that is unfortunately a very involved question in uh, Christianity. or many, many uh, of history's well-known Christians, I say, might be on the wrong side of that question. But um, it's, I think it's pretty possible or relatively easy to make the case that Christianity is a high, hardly reachable standard. Mm-hmm. Um, but I wanted to say one other thing uh, mm-hmm. besides the question of universality, and that is the question of uh, distinct peoples versus a homogenized globe. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think you can read not only the gospel, but the, you know, the, the epistles and these kinds of things as an attempt by people living in a sort of universal homogeneous state, the empire of Rome and attempting within that empire to form a meaningful new separate society. Mm. Um, so in the midst of a, you know, society nation collapsing empire, there was an attempt to reestablish something like a distinct society apart from the rest of mankind, which Rome in a sense claimed to represent. Well, that's really interesting. Hmm. I mean, that's a, I think that's a reading that could be done. I <laughs> do it. You should write that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, someone should. <laughs> <laughs> so then if that's like. So we sort of set up the blame of Christianity that Nietzsche offers, which is to say that uh, kind of democratizing, homogenizing universal morality that threatens to be a kind of morality that only or, or, or that doesn't demand enough of people that's realizable by all because the standard is low. And so it's something that pulls people down. But on the other hand, we could say this um, in addition is that if as like the preface of Beyond Good and Evil suggests Nietzsche understands Christianity as Platonism for the people, for the masses. 
Um, then it would be the case that Plato and Christianity formed the moral horizon of the Western world for 2000 years. This is a pretty good run, um, I think. And to some extent, Nietzsche admires this rule over the minds of men. And he seeks to imitate it insofar as he wants to set the next horizon forming morality or prepare the way for one that is greater than him. However, that may be, um, it does seem like, I mean, this is manifestly true. And um, I don't think anybody can really deny it is to say that most of the serious men in our time are Christians. So then the question is, how should we understand Christianity? Um, did Nietzsche intentionally overstate how weak that it makes men, seeing that Christianity was warped by time and circumstance in his time? Um, and, and I think Fokin's essays are really asking a question like this. Is there a more elevated and aristocratic way to understand Christianity that's also true to what the Bible is saying? Um, is, like, is this a way to understand the Bible as it's meant to be understood? So Fokin wrote some remarkable essays offering a kind of aristocratic interpretation along these lines. Um, so, Fokin, you say that, here's a quote from uh, one of the articles. You say that uh, Christian leaders face this conundrum. If they are assertively Christian, they will alienate many thoughtful people who simply cannot accept either Christian metaphysics or Christian morals. On the other hand, if they try to edit Christian dogmas and morality out of their teachings, they will be ignored by the intelligent people who see no difference between what they preach and what the politicians promise. Uh, end quote. So what should Christian leaders do in light of this conundrum, which I think is like really well put um, and is a genuine conundrum, or how should a Christian leader understand the task of ruling? Well, um, I would say the Christian leader believes saying things that were at one time thought essential to the faith will now push people away from joining their church. <laughs> so they might try to correct this, but that need to correct is not a good sign, as I say in that quotation. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think that's probably, if there is ever such a thing as the last generation of Christians, it will, it will be people who go to church so long as the church is inoffensive. Right. Um, <clears throat> right, because as you sort of like suggest, Christianity today, right now, like a full-throated Christianity is highly offensive to all the pieties of our regime. Yeah. And it's not only offensive, so this is two sides of this coin. On the one hand, it's very offensive to leftists and liberals. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, some of the things it seems to require to you to believe are not acceptable to even uh, average, normal, conservative, thoughtful guys. Mm -hmm. um, the thing that I point out the most like, okay, so everyone knows how Christianity um, offends liberals. It's like hardly uh, everyone knows it. But <laughs> um, but one thing, one thing about Christianity is it seems to say that bad men are always the responsible or the proximate cause of their badness, that they could have been different and that they can be held accountable or punished for the actions they took to become bad. Mm -hmm. um, this, this claim of Christianity requires things like the existence of a soul that's unaffected by the body, um, something like free will, mm -hmm. um, a, a distinction between sin and salvation. These kinds, of, these kinds of categories are, of course, offensive to leftists, but they are also increasingly unacceptable to uh, average or thoughtful conservatives and especially the online right-wingers because what we see growing in the sense of communism is a vast sort of militant underclass that probably couldn't be better than what they are and they're threatening to tear everything down and they have to be opposed, but how can they be opposed if they're not actually evil, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so are you saying that the 
average conservative would have a hard time saying that those people are evil. Yeah. And a online right winger demands that the average conservative like get like wise up, get with the game, stop letting these really bad people get away with things because they aren't quote unquote sinners. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so a Christian leader has to find a way to get over this hump and to lead Christians onwards and upwards. That is, he has to hold them up to the high, traditionally high standards of the faith, high moral standards, um, what is what is now called ascetic morality. Nietzsche's categories have really claimed victory here. Mm-hmm. Um, the the leader of Christians has to hold them up, hold up the ascetic morality, while finding a way to get Christians to recognize that maybe there's a difference between badness and sinfulness, and that both need to be opposed very strongly, even if. Even if the people aren't bad, uh, even if they couldn't help being bad, they still have to be opposed. Right. Right. <clears throat> yeah, that's I think, not easy. That's not an easy thing to convince Christians to think. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, a, a good friend of mine uh, pointed out. I mean, I, it's sort of a book for children, I suppose. But like in the book, The Secret Garden, like the little girl uh, Mary Lennox, in it, she. At the outset of the book, she's sort of a horrible little girl. Now, she's not really horrible through any fault of her own. You know, her parents don't pay any attention to her. And they allow her to be a despot over, you know, the Indian women that, like, watch over her. Because it's, like, British colonials um, who end up, like, you know, dying of a plague or something. But, again, like, Mary, it's like she's a tyrant in a way. And, like, other – you could sort of, like, ask this. Like, you could say Mary is blameless for being wretched that the circumstances that she was born into caused her to become very bad. But nevertheless, I think the way that my friend put it is like, would you want to sit next to her in class? Like, would you want to hang out with her? No, you would discriminate against her in the sense that you wouldn't want to associate with her. You would want, you would say like, I'm, I, I don't blame you for being the way that you are, Mary. However, I don't want to be around you. <laughs> like, so I'm opposed to you wanting to be associated with me, even though it's not your fault that you're bad. Um, or something like that. Um, and something else that what you're saying makes me think of is, I mean, this would be, I guess, like a more theoretical point, but something like, I guess we all probably know people who look for churches who they want the pastor to be sufficiently progressive or liberal in their outlook, um, or the priest. Um, you know, so something like, wow, I heard my priest say something conservative. But it might be the case, you know, that Christianity itself just has to embody something that's much more like conservatism than um, is like progressivism. So that, but but I guess the core of the matter is that when you look for a priest to be more progressive rather than conservative, it seems like what you're saying is, I already know what the truth is, and I know it better, you know, than God does, or something like that. Like you don't see revelation as the source of wisdom; you see unassisted human reason as a source of wisdom you judge revelation by that standard and you just like say like, well, you know, like I like pride month. And if my priest doesn't, I need to find one that does, but it's like, well, you already know what the truth is. And if you already know what the truth is, why are you going to church? What's the point? Um, Yeah, I would, um, (laughs) I would not say people who are excited about pride month are following their unassisted human reason. Well, they've detached themselves from thinking that revelation is a source of wisdom. In a way, I mean, maybe they've detached themselves from revelation and reason. I just, I guess I just mean that they think of themselves as reasonable. And that they, right. I mean, that's what's sure governing, they that that's what should decide what you do or don't do is reason. And they've judged on the basis of what they think is reason that the church is unreasonable. And so they try to find in, in what they interpret as a more reasonable church. Sure. And certainly like a a Socratic philosopher would believe that he could probably prove that everybody on some level uh, puts limits on God, that God must be just according to their notion of justice, even if they try to wiggle out of that. (laughs) Um, Right. Might uh, be teaching of the Euthyphro, among other. Yes, exactly. 
Um, so these like Pride Month revelers, these Pride Parade goers, um, of course, they suffer from this problem. Um, and I would say they suffer from just a general from a Christian point of view, like a, like a general assimilation to the way of the world. Um, and in, insofar as they do that, they, it's interesting that they still want to be Christian sometimes, but <laughs> it's hard to understand um, why they would. And it's hard to believe that they're going to, in any significant way, bear good fruit in the to use christian terminology to further the kingdom of god or evangelize in any effective manner mm -hmm. um typically these are incredibly self-involved people to begin with so, so <laughs> i don't look to them for any impressive uh leadership or explanation of things right yeah, just to say one more thing about this something your essay made me think of is just that it seems like uh, maybe I could put it like this. I mean, just to give an example is like, I went to an SSPX, you know, baptism, you know, my friends, uh, well, I guess daughter and son, uh, two different times, but there's like a way in which like that, those baptisms look like alien things compared to typical Catholic baptisms in like a very good way. Like in a way that I just thought like, wow, there's like something like very beautiful and like, something that draws you to it. something that like really seemed elevated um, that makes you wish to become better in a way. Um, and so it seems like if the, you know, if the church or the various denominations of the church will succeed in the future, it seems like they're better off offering the truth, <laughs> so to speak, um, you know, or, or every capitulation to regime piety. I don't know. It just, perverts the church on one hand and I don't know it just seems like I don't know taking like a hardline stance might be much more attractive that people will see that there is this alternative that's demanding that demands that you try to conquer your own soul or something like to that effect that, that you're invited to this great task or a great challenge as opposed to something that doesn't judge you at all um, and I think that noble human beings like you need noble human beings to be part of anything that's going to succeed. And you can only attract noble human beings if you present something that's noble and the conquest of the soul and its desires seems like a noble task. And if you don't present it that way, like noble human beings won't be attracted to your endeavor. Only, you know, low level uh, communistic souls will be attracted to it. Yeah. So you get more numbers, but it won't matter because there won't be real leaders. I, yeah, that sounds right to me. You can't, there's, there's no future for a church that accommodates and assimilates. It just won't, it, it doesn't provide any serious alternative and it's not as good. It doesn't do progressivism as good as progressives do it. So there's just right. no hope there. Right. So, um, you also say in one of the essays, um, uh, quote, the wagons must be circled. Unless the Christian faith can accomplish this, it turns into liberation theology. Every dead faith is, at bottom, communist. So I guess like the last comment sort of led into this quotation. But Fokin, I wonder if you, because I don't know very much about this liberation theology, that is to say. like, Could you say a little bit about what liberation theology is? Since as you present it briefly in the essays, it seems to provide a very stark contrast against which we might compare um, a more re or a more aristocratic reinterpretation of Christianity. So like what, what is liberal theology and then how might that help us see aristocratic Christianity more clearly? Um, yeah. So you can break liberation theology down into um, sort of give it a core teaching and then examine its, outlying manifestations like the most obvious political um result of liberation theology 
is the promotion of the global south right um so liberation theology is at its most basic level communistic resentment it's a desire for stuff it's uh includes a you know it's fueled by a hatred of america europe the west white people and men in general you know um more fundamentally i'd say liberation theology is an assertion of mankind or at least the vast majority of mankind against the right of any small or smallish group of men to seek a society that excludes the vast majority of mankind. Hmm. So um, at its core, it's a rejection of, I mean, I'm using the word society because uh, I read a lot of Locke. I live in a liberal society. We use this word society. You, if you're a Baptist, you like to say the word mannerbund and things of this kind. Um, it's an Arby's. It's another kind of society. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, so I'm just, but I'm going to keep using this word society. Um, so liberation theology at its core is an assertion that there's only one legitimate society and it's the society of all mankind. And that if you want to have anything of your own, you have to ask for the consent of all mankind. And if you don't get it, then you don't get to have it. So if you, and so you cannot exclude, um, you cannot have a society where it's like, Hey, we are better than the vast majority of mankind. We don't want to have to consider them as equals under the law or in really any moral way. We want to distinguish ourselves from mankind and we want to rely on ourselves when it comes to supporting ourselves and in any conflicts with, uh, with mankind or other groups of men similar to us. Liberation theology rejects this fundamental desire for politics um, or desire for any sort of noble aspiration. Mm -hmm. um, and it asserts that these things are always immoral and that all sorts of exclusion or political rule is unnecessary, that it can be eradicated from human life. And that once it is eradicated, it human life will uh, really enter into a new, you know, utopic or um, heavenly stage. And why will it do that? Because the fundamental evil in human life, according to liberation theology, is exclusion and is oppression. And all rule is oppression according to the that type of theology. So um, unlike a normal Christian theology where if you are suffering, it is your fault, okay? That is, that is the, I think, basic Christian notion of sin. You are suffering bad things, and eventually you will suffer death, and you will deserve all of these things because mm -hmm. they are a result of sin, and you are a sinner, and you continue to sin. Liberation theology, though, removes from the individual, I mean, it's communism, right? It removes from the individual the responsibility for his own suffering, places it on the great evil, which is oppression, and then says the, the purpose of Christianity is through history, the working out of an idea where whereby we can finally rid the world of political rule and exclusion, i.e. we can rid the world of exclusive societies of men. And once we do that, then we will all finally be without suffering. We will be in heaven. I thought you had to die to go to heaven. <laughs> well, maybe you just have to die to yourself. <laughs> That's brutal. But it's only brutal because it's true. Um, uh, <laughs> good. So how about um, let's look then at a couple of biblical passages um, that a communistic human being or liberation theology person might cling to. Um, you know, when you see people online or on the news or whatever, just like say, that's not Christian, you know, because they want to cling to just like a couple little isms that emerge out of a couple different lines. But I think you do a really good job showing how even the communistic lines 
or, or that which the communist might especially cling to and interpret in a poor way, um, actually don't have to be read that way. Um, I, I, this is one of the more like impressive parts of the article um, or the article. So one of them, let's, let's start with this one. Uh, or maybe we'll just go through two, but the first one would be a quote, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. Uh, this is from the book of Matthew. So yeah, it seems like on the face of it, this is saying, or rather the communistic view might say something like, well, rich people are bad. So we need to redistribute their wealth. There's something bad about this person because they have money. They must have gotten it in a sinful way or they're greedy. They are sinful people. And those who are poor, they are good because they're not greedy and therefore they're not sinful or something. I mean, there'd be different yeah. ways to put it, but how, how would you, how do you read this line? What might be a better way to read the line? Um, <clears throat> unfortunately, I cannot recall exactly how I did it in the article, but um, I think, I, I mean, I know how I tend to read these things. So <laughs> <laughs> um, with this camel through the eye of the, the needle quote, the you have to start with the most literal and obvious meaning, and that is that rich people cannot get into heaven, barring some miraculous event. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, I, and the fact that they need a miraculous event is not like a testament to it. It still means that wealth is very, uh, is an obstacle, if not a definitive obstacle mm -hmm. to um, getting into heaven or mm -hmm. salvation. Mm -hmm. Well, okay. Let that be the case. Um, but on the other hand, we also have to let it be the case that power is something Christians have a duty uh, to seek. They have to, they're asked to spread the gospel. They're uh, asked to raise families. Um, they're asked to care for and love one another. These things require power, whether the power is in the form of wealth, as in money or fame or political power, you know, take it, take it whatever, whatever, whichever, which way you want. Um, the fact is, is that people with more substance can accomplish the commands given to them by um, the Bible in general, but also Christ in particular. So it cannot be that's like, it cannot simply be wealth is evil. And we, you know, we, it's relatively obvious, I think, if you think about it, that what wealth does is it shows who the man is. Um, mm. People are fond of saying wealth corrupts, but I think it's wiser to say that wealth or power shows the man rather mm -hmm. than wealth corrupts the man. Like, you know, if somebody has no power and no money and they don't never do anything bad, well, congratulations. Like, that does, does that mean you're a good person? No. Um, <laughs> but if you give, if, if someone, if someone, if they were given wealth and power, if they will always def definitely do sinful, bad, evil things, then that person wasn't good to begin with. Wealth or no wealth. Wealth is not going to make that person, you know, that doesn't change anything. Mm -hmm. um, so um, the proper way, I think, is to then admit these two, I, I would say, two meanings say that there is a mystery involved in how they both work out. We know that we have to acquire wealth and power in order to accomplish um, many of the commands of Scripture. We know, on the other hand, that wealth, at least wealth, but probably all types of power, these kinds of things, are uh, represent an obstacle to salvation. Um, now, Typically, what this obstacle is in the sense of um, distraction or diversion, they, um, they take a man, like I was mentioning, who is not good, and they give him the means to be not good. Um, but ultimately, I think you just have to say it's a mystery. <laughs> that is to say, you have to say um, only a miracle gets the wealthy into heaven. Um, but we are all called to become wealthy and need that miracle. Mm. 
That's a nice way to put it. Yeah, I think to add like one other thing, I mean, I think something, I think you actually said it better now than you did in the article. So this is, uh, this is good. Um, but just like to add a little bit, I think you said something along the lines of in every community of human beings, there will be the rich and the poor, the rulers and the ruled. Um, but shouldn't it be the case that the higher does rule over the lower? But if and only if the high, so let's just say the rich or the rulers, are guided by a transcendent ideal, um, which is to say God's wisdom. Um, so that if they're guided by that, then shouldn't they be setting the tone for society? Shouldn't they be the exemplars, the examples, and the people who you know, tell you if you're being bad or good. Um, and so that there doesn't have to be a kind of democratic leveling within Christianity by this account. And as you say, you know, like you'll find out who you are if you're rich, because, you know, being rich enables you to do things that you might've wanted to do, but couldn't do before. And now you'll find out like, can I resist uh, temptation or like, am I just going to show that I'm a slave, you know, to my passions or something like that? Or will I do things that, you know, benefit the people that I love? Will I do, can I carry out God's will better now that I have money? And it seems like the answer is like in potentiality, yes. But as you say, yeah, there's a lot of avenues of distraction or, you know, shameful possibilities that emerge for somebody with money that aren't possible for somebody who doesn't have it. But nevertheless, um, if you are able to subordinate yourself to God's will, then it would be a good thing to be rich because of the good things that you'd be able to do. Yeah. I, I, I'm tempted to even put it like this by becoming powerful, you endanger your own salvation, mm -hmm. but um, you should make, take that risk for the sake of helping uh, other Christians. Mm -hmm. I mean, you could put it that way. It's kind of a funny conundrum, but that right. is, I think, part of the mystery of Christianity. Yeah. Okay, good. So then let's talk about, um, you know, another sort of thing that gets talked about all the time, which is to say, how should we understand the command to the disciples to turn the other cheek? What, what does this mean? Does this mean that you should just be passive in every conflict that you're in and allow your enemies to dominate you? Um, or is there a different way to read this, to understand what it means to turn the other cheek? Um, what What's entailed in this, do you think? Yeah, I have not been as impressed with left a leftist's attempt to appropriate or use this type of... I'm just tempted to read that kind of um, part of scripture as a command that Christians not be vain, that they not assert their own rights um, in frivolous matters. If, if, it, if it were to require something as absurd as be pacifist, you know, then it would, I would, it, it would need the same treatment that I just gave the, um, previous quotation mm -hmm. which is to say um look there like there are just going to be there are things in christianity that sound like this like you know you, people will also come up and say to you um well they won't like just walk up to you in, on the street and say this but people <laughs> will come and people will say why not just die and go to heaven or why not let the kid die and go to heaven or something like that? You know, mm -hmm. weird, weird, like things where it's like act treating, treating Christianity like it's a mechanism. Um, mm -hmm. But it's not a mechanism. You have to defend uh, people who need defending. You have to stand up to bad guys. Um, Christ obviously at times stands up to people mm -hmm. in uh, refuses to let them have their way. And that is the normal course of things. And Christians have to follow the normal, normal course of things. But also, there are moments where um, 
you can afford to forego the normal course of things where you can show somebody i mean you we know that it's effective like if somebody is belittling you it can be very effective because maybe they're belittling you belittling you out of a sort of insecurity of their own or some sort of fault or problem that they have and if you show them that you are not hating them and that you want their own good you can at times really turn that person around that's that's what is meant there but that doesn't mean i or at least i think it's obvious that it doesn't mean be a pacifist and let people kill you and take your wives and enslave your children like that's not <laughs> that's not the moral teaching of christ right yeah because i mean just even thinking about what you're saying i mean so if part of what the disciples are supposed to do is to evangelize, to lead people to the way. And that is an imposition in a way of your will over them to say that like you believed this other way, you believed in your own way, but that's not the way, like bad things will happen to you, you know, if you don't believe in the way. And so I don't know, it's, it does seem kind of crazy to think that there would be no imposition of your will, no self-assertion, no self-confidence. I mean, don't you have to be unbelievably self-confident you know at the beginning of christianity to go tell people like this is the way um and to convert like the act of trying to convert others implies imposition of your will i mean ultimately imposition of god's will but imposition of will and self-confidence and self-assertion and you know like right as you say jesus does stand up to other human beings and thwarts their wills and so that means that like yeah you're not supposed to be a pacifist like a I think Erasmus says in Against War that we ought to take our bearings about human life from the way that babies are. You know, you're, do you ever see babies hurt people? No. And also babies are vulnerable and need protection. And so the fact that babies don't make war and the fact that, you know, we take care of them implies that we really ought to withdraw from everything and become pacifists. Now, it might be more complicated than that. I don't have like a esoteric reading of Erasmus, just like a, a first time read of him, I guess. But but he, he seems to want to take, and he's a serious person. He's not, you know, unserious, but nevertheless, it seems like that's, he tries to really draw a lot out of that, turn the other cheek, I guess, and tries to find examples of it, you know, within the earliest forms of human life, as if we should take our bearings from humans as incomplete beings, which is to say babies, as opposed to like the fully developed, more perfect form of a human being, which is actually able to do the things that God asks us to do. Um, yeah. So then finally, Fokian, this is something I know almost nothing about. That is like I, I've seen people talk about books on Christian nationalism that have come out recently, but I have not read any of them. I don't know a lot about these debates, um, but you suggested that Christian nationalism might not necessarily be that good um, or and, and in part because I think you pointed out that the idea of nations um, is an idea that's suspect in a certain sense. Like if, if a state, if we're more like states rather than peoples at this point, um, there's like a, a difference or something or that, well, maybe I'll, I'll leave it to you to say more. I'll just end the question by saying maybe how is aristocratical Christianity different and better than Christian nationalism? Um. When it comes to Christian nationalism, I think that the main, the guys who are most visible in that online movement sphere have good ideas and are going in the right direction. It's just you kind of um, stated my fears succinctly enough. I don't believe that Christians or any nation of people is able to resist the homogenizing effects of liberal morality. Mm -hmm. And so, for example, I'm slightly worried that uh, a Christian identity will kind of develop, that it will have Christian, like Christian nationalism, I think is today absolutely necessary for 
Christians in America to be able to overcome the sort of hangups with moral neutrality that have been injected into their bloodstream over the past couple decades. Mm-hmm. So Christ, I think Christian nationalism could help them overcome that, but I'm afraid that having done so, Christians might turn into just another minority group in the United States that asks for their special privileges and special rights and says, hey, look, and, you know, kind of rejoices, we're getting oppressed over here. So you really need to, you know, treat us the way you treat black people. You know, that that mm-hmm. is the worst possible outcome for mm-hmm. Christianity in America today. It's just accepting. I mean, it's the greatest possible form of assimilation and accommodation you can kind of think up. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, in that in that situation, the best the best thing for Christians is to act like a disgruntled, resentful, angry minority group that's that's getting ignored and oppressed by bigger, stronger, you know, fascist people or something. You know, it just turns them into the most common communistic kind of person in America today. Um, so obviously, that is not at all what the Christian nationalists have in mind. Um, I'm just afraid that it can head in that direction because rejecting moral neutrality while important just isn't enough today. And mm-hmm. I'm not, I'm sure that, um, guys like Stephen Wolf would have, uh, would be able to say there's more to it than what you're talking about. Um, mm-hmm. that's just been my, I guess, basic takeaway from, Christian nationalism, that it seeks a genuine national revival, which I don't think will happen. Mm-hmm. And its main theoretical attack is an attack against moral or legal neutrality, which is fine, but it's not, in my view, enough because you can attack that moral neutrality without at the same time establishing an inegalitarian or a truly high moral standard um one which makes christianity into an exclusive religion again that demands people live up to a high standard rather than um merely demands that people say hey i'm christian let me into the church (laughs) well i like that that's a good way to end um well folkian thank you for uh talking about these things uh i think i learned a lot um and yeah, these essays are cool, so I'm glad that you wrote them. <laughs> I appreciate the praise, and as always, I enjoyed talking with you online. All right. Well, uh, Fokian and Brian Cerberus-Wilson are out.